Have you ever worried about not having all of life's answers? Even though you've achieved a lot already, there's still so much to learn. I certainly have. And if you have as well, I empathize with you. This episode is for you. Because there's a way we can maximize our learning to be as widely applicable as possible. And that's by putting our very best knowledge into life's playbook. As we'll see, diverse inputs coupled with specific problems equals consistent progress. And there's one type of knowledge you'll earn on your journey that stands above all others. Let's dive in. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode six of season two. I'm your host, as always, Ben Bradbury. And today for the next half an hour or so, whether you are commuting, cooking, whatever you are doing on the go or sitting down at home, we are going to be diving into a new mental model to help you understand the world and yourself a little bit better, to give you one slightly sharper tool in your toolbox so you can make better decisions across your home, your work, and your relationships. Today's episode is going to help you make better decisions by giving you a refreshing way to think about how you can apply your learnings and your knowledge over the long term. And this is through your life's playbook. Have you ever worried about not having all the answer or the pressure of needing to know how things will pan out in two, five, maybe even 50 years? I got to be honest with you, I'm raising my hand right now. I certainly have. If you have as well, then this episode is specifically for you because I think one of the reasons why we have this anxiety behind us on needing to have all the answers is there's so much information out there today. There's so much to learn that it can feel overwhelming for us to not have that clarity and that direction. Well, a way around this and a way in accepting that it's okay to not have all the answers and not only to relieve stress from ourselves, but actually make more progress is by putting our learnings into our life's playbook. Now, before I go on to tell you what the playbook is, we need to say why it matters, first of all. And there's a cautionary tale from Michael Lewis in his book, Liar's Poker, which deals with Wall Street in the 1980s and why he feels that there's a certain class of people who thinks that they need all the answers. I'm going to quote from his book now and talking about the analysts that had just graduated looking for jobs on Wall Street. The analyst was a prisoner of his own narrowly focused ambition. He wanted money. He didn't want to expose himself in any unusual way. He wanted to be thought successful by others like him. There was one sure way, and only one sure way, to get ahead. And everyone with eyes in 1982 saw it. Major in economics. Use your economics degree to get an analyst job on Wall Street. Use your analyst job to get into Harvard or Stanford business schools. And worry about the rest of your life later. Now, these prospective analysts, they only saw one career path. Hustle like mad for two years to get a job in B-School, or to get a place in B-School rather, and this hurt them miserably in the long run. According to Lewis, these analysts that spent these two years reported some of the most miserable time of their existence. And what would have happened if these analysts weren't blinded and instead saw the countless other ways they could have got to B-School, the countless other opportunities in front of them? Imagine if these analysts had known their skills could have been applied to technology, sports, law, education, 
or any one of a hundred different fields. There'd be way less pressure and they'd feel far more relaxed about knowing that their future would pan out. But they didn't. As it was, they were terse, tense, and terribly troubled to try and make things work out. And what is the difference between having that relaxed state of mind and being frantically worried about the future? It's having a versatile playbook to apply our learnings. Your life's playbook can very simply be defined as the sum total of everything you've learned that is worth knowing. You can think of this as a mental model that represents your very best learnings that you're going to apply later in your career and across your years. But just like a playbook in sports, there's lots of different plays. We're never going to be locked into one path, nor do we need to know exactly how things are going to pan out like the analysts. And as we're going to see, this has a lot of advantages. The life's playbook comes in three stages. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye an hourglass, because these are the three stages that we go through. Wide at the top, narrow in the middle, and then wide at the bottom. So that first stage, being wide at the top, is having diverse inputs. Serendipity is our friend here. We want to learn widely and broadly, not having any stigma behind what we want to consume. Now, the second part is to narrowly focus in the middle, because of course, if we were just trying to learn everything, it would be impossible. And that narrow focus is knowing what we care about. That is knowing the problems that we want to solve. And then third and finally is the wide bottom again. This is the diverse output. And this is knowing that our playbook can be applied to a bunch of different areas, markets, and jobs, regardless of what we work in right now. This is putting our best knowledge into the playbook to apply it to a variety of contexts. And unlike those poor analysts, we're not locked in. Gandhi once said, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. This episode is an exercise in learning because learning is a lifelong journey. And so we'll be asking, how can you build the best playbook possible to maximize your learning, to be as widely applicable as we possibly can? Before we jump into breaking down the pages on our playbook, let's see it in action. Let's see how it actually works. Rebecca Romero is an elite athlete. In 2004, the Athens Olympics, she would win the silver medal in the quadruple skulls rowing. In 2005, she makes the world championships again in the quadruple skulls. She is an elite rower. Now, unfortunately, she was suffering from a persistent back injury. And in 2006, Romero retires from rowing completely. Now, while her rowing career was finished, the knowledge it took to become a world-class athlete was very much alive and kicking. Rebecca Romero opened her life's playbook and went to work. Soon after putting down the oars, Rebecca Romero picks up the pedals. She takes up track cycling. Now, just like rowing, track cycling has endurance, explosive force, sustained performance over time, all contributing to a successful athlete. In other words, there is a big body of transferable knowledge from rowing to cycling. And this would manifest in winning silver at the Cycling World Championships in 2007. But then a year later at the Beijing Olympics, Rebecca Romero becomes the first British woman ever to compete in two different sports at the Olympic Games. Not only did she compete, she did better than she did in rowing. She won gold in the individual pursuit. So what can we learn from Rebecca Romero? 
She took the hard-won knowledge of discipline, training, mental fortitude, all necessary ingredients for an elite athlete, and applied that playbook that she had earned to another sport. She treated her learning as a core set of skills and then found a new market, a new opportunity to apply them to. Later on, she would go on to set up Romero Performance, a sports performance consultancy, where people pay her to learn from her playbook. And that's the power here because she was narrowly focused on improving performance and widely applied her learnings to a new market. And it's the exact same for us. We don't have to be elite athletes to apply this. The core skills that you and I have and that we learn are transferable. As we'll learn from next week's guests, treating the work and the projects we choose to give our time, energy, and attention as a portfolio rather than a single project has its distinct advantages. But for now, all you need to know is that it's okay not having all the answers. It's more about the sum total of knowledge in our life's playbook than any one particular insight. For Rebecca Romero, that knowledge was how to be an elite athlete. But for you and I, that can be whatever we set our minds to. When we accept that we don't need all of the answers, we're ready to open up the top of the hourglass and cast a wide net with our inputs. And for our next story to examine the power of wide inputs, we need to look no further than one of the greatest minds ever to grace humanity, Leonardo da Vinci. But this story is not about da Vinci. It's about the place that made his genius possible. Leonardo's brilliance combined art, science, technology, the humanities, and an abundant imagination. Yet it was not merely the man that made the myth. He was enabled by his environment. And one of those environments where he would do some of his greatest work was Florence. As a young man, da Vinci came to Florence bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And that city would come on to represent one of our big ideas from today, which is the cross-pollination of creativity. Florence was hands down the best environment to be creative in the 15th century world, period. The city wove together art, technology, engineering, and commerce into a dazzling display. Artisans and merchants worked with silk makers to make beautiful fabrics, who would turn around to the shop next to them and work with gold beaters to create enchanted fashions. Woodcarvers worked with architects to adorn the city's fabulous churches. And indeed, the world's largest dome on top of the city's cathedral fused a brilliant mix of art and engineering, which is so symbolic of Florence's diversity. Florence's creativity flourished as well by removing any previous bias. Rather than being persecuted for being illegitimate, gay, vegetarian, or left-handed, Leonardo was completely accepted by Florence for who he was. And alongside him, a whole host of quirky artists were able to make their work flourish. Leonardo was a genius, but he couldn't have found himself in a better place than Florence to catalyze his creativity. So what can we learn from this? Well, it's the intersection of disciplines that made Florence such a creative force. And when it comes to our own learning, we want to learn from this intersection by actively seeking out cross-pollination. We don't want to shy away from diverse inputs and limit ourselves to one mode or one conventional thought of learning. 
No, we want to create a combination of habits and environments that is going to give our life's playbook the diverse inputs that it needs. So this might practically mean for you going to an event that you wouldn't normally attend, committing to read one new article from a brand new site every month that you wouldn't normally consume, or perhaps taking a coffee with someone you've been introduced to or you can find via a networking app to broaden the people that you actually meet. Again, life's playbook doesn't pretend to know all the answers. Sometimes our breakthroughs come from wonderfully unexpected places. And keeping ourselves open to these diverse inputs is a signal that it's completely okay to not have all the answers. But let's be real for a second, because there's a problem with that argument as it stands. Opening our inputs wide open to everything and anything would be frankly overwhelming and impossible. 10 years ago, in 2010, nearly 130 million books had been archived on Google. 400 hours of YouTube content is logged every single minute on the platform. There's more content than ever out there, and this means we need constraints on where we get our inputs. We need to know what we care about. We need to know what problems to solve. A key component of our life's playbook is knowing what we're building towards. And this is that narrow middle of the hourglass that we mentioned earlier. We can be eclectic in getting our information, but that information needs to be applied to something very precise. And I believe one way we can do this is applying it to a specific set of problems that we care about. Because we don't need to know the answers, we're leaving the pressure off of ourselves. All we do need to know is the questions that we want to answer. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman had a technique here, his 12 favorite problems. Feynman says, and I quote, you have to keep a dozen of your favorite problems constantly present in your mind, although by and large they will lay in a dormant state. Every time you hear or read a new trick or a new result, test it against each of your 12 problems to see whether it helps. Every once in a while, there will be a hit and people will say, how did he do it? He must be a genius. The specificity that's created by keeping a dozen of our favorite problems in our mind allows us to cast a wide net with intentional purpose. Knowing these problems gives us a sounding board to apply our inputs to. It gives our life's playbook a plot. So how do we find the problems that we actually care about? Well, we need to think about where we've spent our time so far and what interests us. And an exercise that we can use to do this, which was popularized by Chris Dixon, is the idea maze. The idea maze states that the longer we have spent exploring an idea, all the nooks and crannies, twists and turns, the clearer the path will be if we ever want to act on it or build something out of it. This means taking the time to understand the history, the environment, the key players and big mistakes that shaped the areas you care about. For example, a popular email client that is taking the world by storm right now is called Superhuman. And the founder of Superhuman, Rahul Vora, spent 10 years in the idea maze of email, dealing with all the headaches and intricacies that traditional email can offer. And it was by traveling in this maze for that long that he's allowed himself to understand the problem so completely. And so Superhuman positions itself as the fastest email experience ever made. And it probably is. So we can apply this ourselves by asking, what maze have I been traveling in? 
Perhaps this is looking at how many years you've spent in a particular industry or at a particular company. It could be how many years you have lived in a certain city, because the more concrete your context, the more real your vision can be. Or perhaps there's something you're deeply interested in that might not pay the bills right now, but you have that burning passion for. That could be a maze that you're walking down as well. However we want to define them and shape them, we want to create a bottleneck of focus in the middle of the hourglass that we can bounce all of our learnings off of. So we're creating a tightly knit set of problems that one day we can hopefully break through with the right information. And that's the power of having a life's playbook. And this is where the third and final piece slots neatly into place. We start with wide inputs at the top of the hourglass. It then shrinks narrowly to a narrow set of problems specifically defined by what you know and care about. But then third and finally, we don't limit the application. The hourglass spreads right back out and we have a very wide application to our solutions. So let's explore how we can cultivate a wide lens when it comes to our learning. Diane Green is the founder and CEO of VMware. She's also the board member of Alphabet. She's about as close to royalty in Silicon Valley as you can get. And Green has this idea called sideways ideas. She believes that truly scalable ideas often come at you sideways. And that means that you don't get the idea right the first time round. Read between the lines, you don't need to know all the answers. But you do need to be prepared with the right team and the right system to capitalize on them when they arrive. So this is less about getting it right the first time and more about being able to listen to how things are evolving. A sideways idea is a tangential opportunity. But what does this mean practically? Well, let's take a step back and look at the wider principle of applying sideways ideas. What if all of our paths were never straightforward? What if they all came from tangential opportunities? How might you treat your career? I submit that this is closer to reality than you might think at first. It's certainly closer to the reality of the poor Wall Street analysts who are fixated on one career path to their detriment. In 2020, we have more options than ever. The world is beautifully open. And so if this is true, that our opportunities come from these sideways ideas, these tangential opportunities, perhaps we would start to think more like a serial entrepreneur. Now, before you get any ideas in your head, I'm going to put one caveat out there straight away. You don't need to be an entrepreneur to think like this. You don't need to have started a company to benefit. All you need to do is understand how a serial entrepreneur thinks. And what's really important here is the environment that serial entrepreneurs exist in. While studying serial entrepreneurship, the academic Saras Sarasvathi writes the following, and I quote, For the one-time entrepreneur, the firm is an end in itself, whereas for the multiple entrepreneur, each firm, whether successful or failed, is an instrument of learning that enables him or her to achieve better performance over time. Instruments of learning. All of these firms that the serial entrepreneur starts goes into their playbook and the next company that they iterate on is going to absorb those learnings and no doubt improve as well. But we have one distinct advantage over the serial entrepreneur. For their learnings to accumulate, they have to go again. They have to start multiple companies. We do not. Our stakes are lower in that sense. 
We don't have to bet the stack on a company that we start, but we do have to bet on ourselves and specifically on the projects that we choose to invest in. For you and I, we can use projects to guide our learning. And this doesn't have to be starting a company. This could be working in another company, having a hobby, having a side hustle, having anything at all that we invest our time, energy, and attention into. They can be learnings that we take forward to the next version of ourself. For me, with subject matter, this principle is very relevant. Season two's focus is improving your decision making. But each model that I talk about, I make a point to apply to myself as often as possible. And I'm happy to say that it's improved my decision making this year so far. And so for me, that makes this project an instrument of learning. It makes it a win before even anyone listens to an episode. There's another important part to this as well. If we can treat our projects as contributing to an overall playbook for our life, this means we can ask what chapters are missing from the playbook right now. Where do I need to work on missing pieces? It lets us respond to life's uncertainties with an ever-evolving playbook. It's all right to not have all the answers. But by knowing that this it's not about the specific project but the body of work that it builds into, we can be intentional about where we spend our time and what learnings we need to iterate onto that next version. The big idea is having transferable knowledge, widely applying our solutions, not limiting ourselves, and being fluid in how the playbook is applied. So it's time for a practical framework to apply this bottom of the hourglass and to actually understand why this wide application helps us make consistent progress. And the economist Tim Harford calls this slow motion multitasking. Slow motion multitasking simply says it's good to multitask. It's good to have many things on the go. And while of course projects do need specific focus, there's definitely an argument to having more than one project on the go. Because rather than feeling pressured to make it in one specific thing we're working on right now, it allows us to make slow and steady progress over time. Now for those of you who listened to episode 2 of this season, this might remind you of win Wimbledon once and perhaps being antithetical. But I do want to stress that the idea of singular focus fits nicely into this. We should always know which project is getting our time, energy and attention as a priority. But that's not to say that if we ever come up against hurdles, as I'm sure we certainly will, that we can't make progress on other projects as well. So what are the benefits of having many things on the go? What's the benefit of slow motion multitasking? The first is context switching. By going between these different projects, we allow ourselves to cross-pollinate our creativity just like Florence. Archimedes had his breakthrough on water displacement when he jumped into a bathtub, when he changed his context. The second benefit is allowing ourselves to cross-train just like Rebecca Romero the diverse experiences that we collect is going to make the overall project better. And third and finally and perhaps most importantly for me is that we can make consistent progress. Slow motion multitasking means there is always something important to work on. And because it's okay to always have more than one project on the go, we can always be making consistent progress. Isn't that a relief? So by combining the treating of our projects as a portfolio, applying key knowledge broadly to a wide range of solutions and choosing not to limit their applications means we can make consistent progress over time and keep ourselves open to new opportunities. For today's last lesson, 
there is one final but crucial caveat. Not all lessons in our playbook are created equal. In the field of physics, there is a term for what's called first principles. These are the established laws of the universe as we know them. They are the foundational layer on what all we know about science rests upon. So no biggie then. But I would argue that these first principles go beyond physics. I would argue that much as in the same way that everything we know about physics rests on these fundamental principles, the biggest lessons for our life rests on similar first principles too. These are going to be the titles of the chapters in your playbook. These are the very best knowledge that you have. These are only earned through experience, and they are your scars. Scars don't always have to hurt, but scars are always earned. They are our most valuable knowledge that can't be faked, bought, or bartered. They are tangible lessons, only ever earned and learned through experience. Now, this experience could come through from the idea maze. If you've spent years or decades in one maze, the odds are you have plenty of scars to show for it, but you earned those scars by walking through the maze. To illustrate the power of scars, I want to share a quick example from my own life. My life's biggest scar that is definitely the chapter on one of my pages of the playbook took 20 years to earn. I never really fitted in at school. In hindsight and opening my life's playbook today, I realize that why I never fitted in, that problem started and ended with me. But for the first 20 years of my life, I was blissfully ignorant of that. Until one day, just after turning 20, sitting in my university room, this realization hit me like a lightning bolt to the brain. All this time, I realized that I had been playing the victim. I thought that the world was genuinely just out to get me all through my childhood. And when I realized this, not only was it incredibly profound, but looking back on it almost six years later, if I'm to plot my life on a graph before that 20 years, I kind of see it going in a steady averaging out where not really much is happening, but it's, it's kind of wasted talent. And then as soon as that inflection point happened, as soon as that scar was etched onto my playbook, my life's graph slowly but surely starts ticking up. It took me 20 years to realize that it was my own faults, that it was my victim mentality that had led to me not being understood through my entire life. But it was that same scar, that same realization that fuels me today to help other people understand themselves better. It's one of the big reasons why I started Subject Matter. And while I'm immensely grateful for having this lesson, there's no way I could have predicted that scar. And for you, your biggest lessons can't be predicted either. They can only be earned through experience because it's this scarred knowledge that is going to build your life's playbook into the strongest book it possibly can be. But I'm not the only one who has seen what a scar can do to your life. It's been a really interesting thing for me to kind of zoom out and look at my life from 30,000 feet and watch that as the pivot point. It's crazy. I, I never imagined, you know, people talk about these aha moments and I, I, I thought it was a load of crap. I didn't think that was ever going to happen to me, but it did. And it's completely life-changing. And to find out what that life-changing moment was, you'll have to tune in next week to hear from our next guest. So let's review everything that we've learned about learning today. First of all, the Life's Playbook's magic is its versatility. Like both wide ends of an hourglass, 
we start by broadly cross-pollinating creativity and staying open to diverse inputs, while keeping the application of that knowledge broad too, just like a serial entrepreneur. And secondly, this goes hand in hand with the middle of the hourglass, our narrowly defined problems. Being specific on what we care about solving creates a bottleneck of focus. And it's this target that we can apply our hard-earned knowledge to. And finally, if we can embrace this idea of the life's playbook as an embodiment of all the knowledge we have, we can realize it's okay not having all the answers. No one is born with a complete playbook. We accumulate our lessons over time. And the most valuable lessons of all, well, they're our scars, paid for with experience. They can't be predicted, but they will almost always be remembered. Thank you for listening to this episode of Subject Matter. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss out on our next episode dropping every Tuesday. Our big focus this season is making subject matter as relevant and practically useful to you as possible. If there was something you particularly liked or you didn't like or would like to see more of, we would love to hear from you. You can reach me directly at ben at benbradbury.com or via Twitter at benbradbury underscore. So without further ado, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week for the next episode of Subject Matter.